We have a difficult situation here. Dr. Goldson, how do you think we are going to reconcile this past of systematic violence and discrimination? So one of my areas of research is reparatory justice. And it's not just about giving money back. And I think a reparatory framework is important in this country because we've not had one. And here's what I mean by a reparatory framework. One, people in power... They need to acknowledge that incredible historical violence have been done to people of color and to African-Americans in particular in this country. That kind of acknowledgement must be there first. Accompanying that acknowledgement is a formal apology from people in power and people with power that, hey, we have done wrong done wrong in terms of native genocide, done wrong in terms of enslavement, done wrong in terms of the Jim Crow um, legislation, done wrong in terms of the systemic racism, done wrong in terms of the everyday practice of racism. So that has to accompany it. We also need for the country to be educated on what really happened, the complete narratives of history, what African-Americans have undergone in this country, all the historical atrocities, not just the narrative that whether it's Black History Month or MLK Day and we had a dream and we walked and we got Johnson to sign some bill and Kennedy to sign or whoever signed. It has to be more than that, that the struggle continues. Then with the acknowledgement, the apology, the education, there has to be Justice, racial justice has to be a legislative priority. In terms of looking at the systems in their totality, healthcare and it's an access to it, housing and access to it, education, access to it, policing, all these things have to be looked at in order to shift the balance of power, shift the way in which resources are allocated so that all communities and black communities in particular can benefit from the country, the money available in the country. Ultimately, reparations is also about correcting historic wrong. Mm-hmm. And so that's tied to the legislative priority of ensuring that there's a level playing field for all. And I mean, different groups have their you know, list of demands that thing must be looked at in its totality. And then we're talking about one of the things is that, you know, black communities here, we're we're missing the men from the communities Mm -hmm. because they're in prison. So for nonviolent offenses, crime, if you you call it, people have to be pardoned and released because releasing someone from prison doesn't ultimately change the person's position. Because there's a criminal history and a criminal record accompanying the person that makes it difficult to get jobs. Yeah. So these these records for marijuana possession, selling of coke or crack or the use thereof, um, these things need to be expunged. They, they people need to be released, and these records need to be wiped completely clean, so that people can have a fresh start. Yeah. That's part of it. The damage that's done to communities, I mean, like people who have lost their land during the 30s, these families need to be compensated. 
people whose whose loved ones have been lynched, these individuals, not only to be identified and memorialized, but to be compensated. Because there has to be healing within this nation yeah. from the, the racial trauma, the violent, uh, you know, racial trauma, violence, in order to go forward. I don't think it's going to happen overnight. It's a process. But we have to be talking about it honestly, openly. And we need to have leaders, elect leaders, who understand that reconciliation is important. Let's look at South Africa as a model. I mean, it's not a perfect model, but when apartheid ended, one of the, the, there was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was formed to deal with these things. America has not had such an experience hmm. because one day, okay, 1865, here comes Lincoln and his posse won, so everything is good, slaves are, are free, and then after, well, we have a wonderful legislation called the Civil Rights Act, uh, everything is good, and oh, here comes Obama elected, everything is good. No, those kind of narratives preserve the status quo and perpetuate a wrongful picture that everything is okay, but it's not. It's not. We have to acknowledge that it's a broken system, a broken country, and in order to fix it, it has to be a collective effort. So people coming together, people being taught how to get rid of some of the stigmas that they, and stereotypes they hold about black people. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's going to take a lot of heavy lifting and hard work. But I think now in this moment is a good time to really talk about and make tough decisions. It seems that this is something that is going to require a bit of soul searching as a country. We are so individualistic in America, the notion that helping everybody, even if it doesn't help one person individually, is a good thing. Is I feel like it's a harder message to sell here than it is anywhere else in the world. Right, which, which includes shifting some of the narratives, because there are a lot of people who think America is an equal opportunity country, and that if you want it, you can have it, because that's the American dream, it's all here, go take it. And they completely, completely forget the huge barriers that are there for for people of color and for African-Americans. I I think this leads into something that that I wanted to make sure we cover. And we did we did reach into it a little bit earlier, this idea of privilege. And it's becoming clear that just being nice and not being racist is not enough to solve this problem. And. I think a lot of people who are in any sort of privileged group, whether it's white people, whether it's cis people, whether it's men, have a hard time with this idea that, of privilege and just feel that they don't want to hear it because they don't want to think that they didn't have it hard or that it somehow invalidates their experience. Can you speak to what your thoughts are on people who have privilege, how they can best be allies to support people in less privileged groups and what what the message about privilege is trying to convey since i have confidence it can be more constructive than just hey people with privilege should feel bad about themselves right for me this whole idea of privilege and in particular white privilege because you know people like to say well everybody has privilege which is true Mm -hmm. but the problem here is white privilege because our oh, particular um, combat here is um, racial disparities and racial inequalities and racism. People with this privilege have to recognize that they have it first. 
it's not necessarily anything that you have done. It is something that's given or imputed or accorded to you based on your your race, based on your the color of your skin. And that's just how the society functions. It's a function of the structural racism that, that exists. Now, the next step in you know, having recognized your privilege is to say that I have privilege. I can't do anything about it. It is what it is. But I can train myself. I can teach myself. I can condition myself. I can become anti-racist in the sense that my privilege will be deployed to the benefit of the entire community working, using this access that I have, using this privilege that I have to ensure that minority groups, people of color, black people are treated fairly, are given access. Because what privilege does, it allows the individual with it to have a voice and to have a place at the table. It doesn't matter how small it is, you will be listened to. Your suggestion will be taken and ultimately, when these individuals are in places of power, which is what privilege does in many respects, is to put white people into positions of power to work within those institutions to ensure that there is racial equality, that there's equity, ensure that all people have access, and not only have access, but are also placed into, and I'm talking about African-Americans, are placed into positions of power too. Because many times institutions, they, they talk a good game about diversity and they talk a good game about being racially balanced, and, but it's not. Hmm. And my thing is, if there's an institution in America today that's, let's say, over 20 years old and has never had a black woman or a black man at, at its head cannot honestly talk about using white privilege to the benefit of others or being inclusive. You cannot talk about it. So even if you have employed a few black folks to fill positions within your organization, but no one has really risen to the top and really helped the collective to rise as well, you can't really talk about deploying your privilege in any serious way. So we're talking about becoming an ally becoming someone who understands the, the problems with the race in this country and work actively, Listen, listening, of course, to black people and what they're saying to you, and enact work to change systems of oppression. That, that's ultimately the conversation we have to have about what it means to have white privilege and what you ought to do with it. So I see a lot of parallels to the idea that uh, that Andrew Carnegie had about wealth is that if you have something that other people don't have, it's imperative that you use it for the greater good. I think it, it sounds like uh, step one is that people acknowledge that they have some innate power as a result of the societal structure, e even if they're facing struggles, because certainly there are lots of, of white people who have very big challenges and economic problems of their own, but uh, that still does give them the ability to be advocates in, in other situations and, and help. In line with this, what are the aspects of 
the argument that, oh, all lives matter. Oh, I don't see color or, you know, oh, we should just live in a colorblind society. What, what is problematic about that approach to race? In short, what's problematic about it is it overlooks the, the reality. It overlooks the fact that there's deep structural and systemic racism. It overlooks the reality that black folks are being killed at a, um, by the police at a higher rate than white people who have committed serious crime or no crime at all. Um, it overlooks the fact that there's a huge section of the society that's marginalized by virtue of race. So it's imperative that people move beyond that kind of framing that, oh, all lives matter. Oh, I don't see color. You know, if you don't see color, any kind of race-blind policy or race-blind approach ultimately serves to further disenfranchise people who are already disenfranchised, i.e., Black people in this country. It kind of makes me think about how um, in medicine, if somebody has a medical condition, if they're going for, say, a surgery or if they get sick or anything, you know, even with COVID, how we say that people who have heart disease or diabetes, they're higher risk with having a worse time with COVID if they get sick, having a higher risk of being in the ICU or dying. It almost makes me think about what life could be like if we were in a sort of hyper-aware-of-race society where we really looked at and talked about how race is a social determinant of health and so many other things. And, you know, maybe if our biases could be, oh, this person is Black, he or she needs even more support. I need to make sure that I am connecting him or her with even more resources because of, every, you know, the odds are stacked against him or her. Yeah. Uh, it seems to me like one of the appeals to the colorblind approach is it allows people who are currently in positions of um, the majority in positions of power to say, okay, everything's fixed now. And it, it seems a little bit like if there was a road race and one car had the chance to get a bunch of uh, nitrous put in and then decides that, okay, we're now going to ban nitrous going forward when, when they've already achieved a major uh, advantage and they're like 10 laps ahead. Exactly. <laughs> it, it, it seems like fair. It seems fair on the surface, but it's uh, yeah. It's, it seems like a gross oversimplification, and I think it's a trap that a lot of people who are acting in good faith fall into. Related to this, and also kind of related to the privilege issue, there's talk about performative support, and how can you tell if something is helpful versus? whether somebody's just feeding their own ego and then feeling good about themselves. Like, okay, you know, uh, I, I've reblogged three posts on Facebook and I upvoted some things on Reddit. Racism is fixed. I'm good. How do we guide people away from performative support and toward things that are going to be more substantial? So that's always a problem, right? And posting Black Lives Matter banner on your window or your front lawn, that, that's easy to do. And maybe even showing up at a protest for one day and come back and, you know, post something on Facebook and said, okay, I've done my good deal. Well, to steer people away from that, it's important that they are in conversation with black people, people who are oppressed, mm -hmm. constantly in conversation, following what activists are doing and looking to the things that achieve meaningful change, like 
changes in laws. So lots of the protests, and, you know, a protest is an initial step. It draws attention, but it's also performative, right? But a protest itself doesn't achieve meaningful or necessary long-lasting change. Having participated, it comes to things that are more substantive, like, all right, I'm going to put all my political, social, and economic capital to ensuring that the performative things that I've been doing um, align with meaningful change for people of color, for black people, which involves voting. Because let's not kid ourselves. Lots of people will post the Black Lives Matter sign and go to the rally, but still vote for candidates that are harmful, that have policies and believe in things that are harmful to the black community. Yeah. We're also talking about people who can ensure that within their their workspaces and their workplaces that people of color are treated fairly, are given opportunities for promotion, uh, for tenure, and and that kind of stuff, for pay equality. Something that's very helpful is to require of all the organizations that you're associated with, including the place that you work, to release data on what the income for all employees are. I know that there's a lot of protection around, you know, and it's so secretive on what people are getting, but let's not kid ourselves. Not because all of you have the same degree and training means that people are getting paid fairly and the same. There is huge racial inequality uh, in terms of, of salary and also gendered differences here as well. So having that data out there so we can all see it, so demand that it's there. I saw something that was meaningful where a few CEOs and presidents and people in high position gave up their spot and said, hey, I'm stepping down, put a person of color. Hmm. That, that's sacrificial. That's huge. Yeah. But it's necessary because that's recognizing that I've benefited from the system as a white person and I have a duty, I have a moral obligation to ensure that others benefit as well. So those are some of the things to really that are more substantive than, you know, just showing up at the protest. Showing up is important, but we're talking about substantive change here. Dr. Goldson, you are, have kind of been building towards this as we've been asking you questions. Is there anything more you would say about what you see as the ideal endgame? What does an ideally integrated, multicultural, and mutually respectful society look like? It is a society that, one, at its core... I mean, its ethos is respect, mutual respect for everyone. We have to say it, we have to believe it, we have to practice it. Mm-hmm. Two, it is a society in which people with privilege and power will divest of themselves that privilege, that power, in support of a greater, greater help to everyone in the society. That extends to economics, where people who have incredible, incredible amount of money, because let's not kid ourselves, along with race is economics. They intertwine and they commingle and they overlap in significant ways. So the billionaires and the millionaires, they have to see that they have a moral responsibility to the country as well in order to help combat some of this. Uh, racial disparities across the, the, the nation. It is a country that people live together in community. 
So not just living together in a community, but in community, meaning there is intentional effort on the part of each member of the society, black, white, Jew, Muslim, men, women, trans folks, LGBT um, folks, like everybody intentional in community together in conversation, learning about each other, learning from each other, and trying to build together, cooperating to build together a better society, one that a, a black person can walk the street without being watched or surveilled, a society in which the presence of a, a black person is not seen as a threat or a potential threat. So that's the kind of society where power is not, not concentrated in the hands of a few white males, but power is, is shared, is given, because that's what black people lack in this country ultimately, is power. And so that power has to be redistributed, has to be, has to be shared. Can we ever get to a, a society where people are not hyper-vigilant or hyper-conscious about race? I mean, I have to hope that it's possible. I have to hope that, you know, race itself at some point in the future won't be a negative determinant of anything. It's hope. I have to hope for that. But along with this hope, I recognize there has to be hard work, like tough work, intentional work within the community to replicate um, spaces in which people are, are, are respected, people are mutually affirmed, people are given access and people have access and people um, capitalize on this access regardless of the, the color of their skin. So that's a society I'm hoping that we can move towards a less divisive society a society that recognizes the worth and the dignity, the human dignity of each person so that all of us can flourish together. Those sound like laudable goals, and I think there's no reason we shouldn't all be working to achieve them. Like any ideal, it sounds like we're away from achieving that, but if we could at least get people to agree that that's something worth fighting for, I think it would be huge. Thank you for being on our podcast, Dr. Goldson, and thank you for sharing your thoughts and outlining how hard it's been and how hard it's going to be to change our trajectory and how worthy it is of our time and effort. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure talking to you. We really appreciate having you on and um, we'd love to have further discussions in the, in the future. So don't lose our number. <laughs>